Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that you are here. We pray that we would sense even more strongly your presence with us, and we pray now that you would be faithful to speak to us. What we need to hear is not from man, and so we pray that you would open to us your word. We pray that you would illuminate it to us, Spirit, bring light to our eyes so that the truth of it might come off the pages and into our hearts. We pray today that you would show us that you are a God who concerns yourself deeply with the outcast, the marginalized, the one on the edges and the fringes, and you pull them all the way in. We pray that that would sound like good news to our ears and bring joy to our lives. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> okay, Seven Mile Road, we are jumping back into the book of Ruth that we started and kicked off last week. And we said last week that if you are an ordinary person and wondering how God fits into your ordinary life, and into the ordinary moments of your life, then Ruth is the book for you. And last week we saw that the book started with this woman whose life had basically fallen apart. Life had kicked her in the teeth. In fact, just to remind you and let it be fresh in your ears, I'm going to read for you Ruth 1, verses 1 through 5, so that you hear it again. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. The way that the book of Ruth starts is sort of surprising, right? There's sort of a surprise built in right at the beginning. And that shouldn't shock us because the Bible is often filled with surprises and reversals. The Bible's filled with what you see isn't what you'd expect. What you get isn't what you were thinking you'd get. The Bible has reversals built in all over the place. For example, the scriptures teach that the last will become first, and the first will become last. The scriptures teach that those who are humble will be exalted, and those who are exalted will be humbled. The scriptures teach that the servant of all is the greatest of all, and the greatest of all is the servant of all. We could keep going all day, but woven into the scriptures, into the Bible, are these reversals so that you're constantly saying, whoa. I did not see that coming, right? You're constantly caught off guard by the scriptures. It's sort of like when you watch Sixth Sense. At the end, you go, whoa, I did not see that coming. He was dead the whole time, right? Or Usual Suspects, whoa, I did not see that coming. The guy with the limp is Kaiser Sose, and so on it goes, right? That's the way scripture works as well. Great stories have that. Now, here's what's unique about Ruth. Ruth doesn't just have a great ending. Ruth actually starts with a surprise beginning. Ruth, right off the bat, has a surprise beginning. What do I mean? If you were back in the day and you were raised in Middle Eastern culture and you're sitting in ancient Israel and you grab Ruth and start reading, 
Well, right off the bat, you're introduced to Elimelech, right? And right away, you're clued into, here's the man. This is the patriarch. This is the head of the family. This is sort of the godfather. This is who the story is going to be about. And then you get one verse in, and you're told this man, the head of his home, has a wife, and he's got two sons, Malon and Kilion. And so if you're a first-time reader, you're sort of settling into your seat. You're getting comfortable because now all the major players have been introduced. The major characters are there, the scene is set, and you're ready now for a story about these three men, Elimelech, Malon, and Kilion. Except, with just a few seconds after they're introduced, in five short verses, all three of them are literally wiped off the stage. Dead, done, gone. And all you have left in the story are three grieving, sonless widows. Three grieving, sonless widows. Naomi, the widow of Elimelech, Orpah, the widow of Kilion, and Ruth, the widow of Malon. I read this book, a great book, called The Gospel According to Ruth by a woman named Carolyn James. And she makes this great point of saying, now think about this for a second. If you're in that world, and you're talking about a day and a culture where a woman's place in society was literally defined by the man she was connected to, whether that was her husband or her son, that man was what gave her a sense of place and security in society. And now you've got a story built on three husbandless, sonless women. That would have been of no interest to anyone then. Right? For them there, there would be no point in reading on. Naomi is a widow. She's got no husband. Ruth is even worse. She's a barren widow. And we know that because the text has clued us in. Ten years have passed. No kids. Right? Now, even in our day, we get what the text is sort of hinting at. Right? If you've been married a year, two years, three years, four years, five years, people might leave you alone. Year six... Don't you want to start a family? Don't you think it's time to start a family? Year seven, year eight, year nine. By year 10, nobody even asks anymore because everyone just assumes something must be wrong. Right? Ten years in a culture pre the pill, pre family planning, in a culture where sons would have been valued. Ten years, no kids. And so the story is of a widow, a husbandless woman, and a barren widow at that, a sonless, husbandless woman. At this point, what the story is sort of prompting you to ask is, what story is left? Where is this going to go? There is no future, right? If there was a sort of bassinet in the corner, then at least you'd have some hope this might develop into something, right? That's how the stories work. Even if you watch, for example, if you watch the original Batman, the parents are killed off in the first scene, but... There's a little boy who's going to grow up, Bruce Wayne, and become Batman, right? Even the cartoons, Simba, Simba's, the, I mean, Mufasa dies, but you've at least got Simba who's going to grow up and do something heroic. Here, the first readers would have been saying, this story stopped before it began. This story ended before it got started, and yet, in a whoa, I did not see that coming kind of way, there's this surprising reversal that tells you, this is actually where the story just begins. This is actually where the story just gets started. Because in that ancient Middle Eastern culture, in a culture that did not see it coming, 
an all-female cast takes center stage. I mean, if you're reading this, you would have thought that Naomi and Orpah and Ruth are props on the stage to tell you a story about Elimelech and Malon and Kilion. And in five verses, you find out it's completely the opposite, that they are props on the stage to tell you a story about these women. In fact, it's subtle, but you're almost hinted at this in verse 3. Commentators notice that in verse 3 it says, But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. Elimelech, the husband of Naomi. Commentators point out, you know what that's like? That's like instead of going into a room and saying, Hi, my name is Naomi, I'm Elimelech's wife. Hi, my name is Naomi, I'm Elimelech's wife. That is you going into the room and shaking every hand going, Hi, my name is Elimelech, I'm Naomi's husband. Hi, I'm, I'm with her, is what the text is sort of saying. I mean, it was very rare for a man to be identified by his relationship to his wife rather than the other way around. And so there's some kind of reversal, some kind of surprise, something's happening here. And what's happening is that into a culture that would have never seen this coming, God takes these two women who have been pushed off to the side, props on the stage, in the fringes and margins, and he pulls them center stage into his story. He grabs them who we would have thought the story was done and makes them the center of what his entire story is about. Ruth is the tale that you would have never thought anyone wanted to hear about two husbandless, sonless women, widowed and barren. Now think about that for a second. Widowed and barren. You talk about outskirts. You talk about the edges. You talk about the fringes of society. You talk about the lowest, the last, and the least. You don't get much more in the margins, in the gutters of the social ladder, than being a widow and being barren. Remember we said a woman was supposed to secure her place in society through marriage and motherhood. And Ruth and Naomi had neither. Marriage and motherhood, this is how you stood in the world. This is how you fit in the world. This is how you fit in society. This is how you fit among God's people. This is how you fit into God's purposes. And now, Ruth and Naomi have neither. And so that brings the question, where do I fit in God's world? Where do I fit in the society? Where do I fit among God's people? Where do I fit in God's story? Take the widow for a second. I mean, you talk bottom of the social ladder, bottom of the social food chain, that's the widow. A widow, a a woman who would not have had a husband to defend her, was in a very precarious and dangerous and vulnerable spot. Widows were constantly taken advantage of, abused physically, socially, all the rest. In fact, that's why the scriptures have so many commands from God saying, you better take care of the widow. That's why God over and over again will threaten people by saying, if you mess with a widow, you will have me to deal with. Because God is incredibly concerned for their low estate. And and so in, in, in our world, I don't know that we would fully understand how vulnerable, how ending of their life being a widow was. Right? We're in the West. We're in America. It's 2015. Everybody's equal. For us, this world feels very foreign and unfamiliar. 
But the truth is, lots of other parts of the world would have a much easier time understanding the culture of Ruth, understanding this world. For example, as I was reading Carolyn James's book, she pointed out of a practice in India called Sati, the, the idea that for years, I mean literally till just a few decades ago outlawed, for years, think of the fact that when a man died and he was cremated, his wife would literally fall on that fire because her life was done. What would be the point? Her story's over. Her use in the world is over. It was so tightly connected to her husband that her life might as well have been done. Now again, that's hard for us to even understand, but what I want you to hear is that though we feel very far removed, I do think there's a sense in which we might be able to relate to Naomi much better than we think. If, if nothing else, just consider this. The stats tell us that nine out of ten wives will be a widow at some point in their life. Right? You think of that. 90% of the wives in this room, the overwhelming probability, we men, we just wear out faster. Life takes us out quicker. The overwhelming probability is that 90% of the wives in this room will have some season of their life where they will have buried their husband and then live. So if you take that seriously for a moment, when that day arrives, is your story done? When that day arrives, does God have anything he intends to still do with your life? Is your usefulness and your role in God's world, in God's society, among God's people, and for God's purposes tied into your husband, or does God have more for your story? And hear me, for some of us, we don't have to imagine a distant day to imagine the pain of living without a spouse. Whatever the circumstances might be, some of us know that pain even now very well. As I've talked with our people and other people, I know that there are great joys that come with not having a spouse, with being single in a season of life. There's great freedom. There's great blessing. Life can be incredibly joyful. And in fact, I want you to hear, that's what the scriptures do say. The scriptures do say, in the New Testament, Paul does say that singleness is a gift, that you do have this ability to serve the Lord with abandon in a way that other folks can't, and that you ought to use your opportunity for God. And so there is a great joy and great opportunity with that. At the same time, I've talked to enough single brothers and sisters to know there are also great complexities and great difficulties, and great hardships, and great challenges. On the one hand, it is the most incredible gift and blessing to have nothing tying you down, and you can do and be anything. And yet sometimes, ironically, the very thing that is the best part of it is also the worst part of it. There's nothing to tie you down, nothing to hold you back. I remember talking to a single brother who was a part of this church, no longer here who told me, out of all the places, this can be the hardest place. Right? You, you think about that. I don't know if you've noticed, but we have a lot of couples here. Right? And so this can be an incredibly trying place. A place where you're constantly reminded of this longing that you have that is not yet fulfilled. A, a thing that we ought to be mindful of. Right? It, it can raise this difficult question, which is, why would God give me this longing? Why are my entire being with this desire and then frustrate me in it? 
and not give it to me. And if the widow can feel like her story's done, for many others, it can feel like, when is my story finally going to begin? Right? You've been writing a long prequel, God, but I'm ready to jump in and start. Where do I fit among God's people, in God's world, for God's purposes? Is my life on pause until you complete it somehow? We, we might relate to Naomi much better than we think. Or, or take Ruth for a second. The woman who is struggling not only with being now husbandless, but also childless. What would that have been like for 10 years of trying with no pregnancy? For, for again, for many of us, this can feel far removed. The barren woman joined the widow at the bottom of society, totally cast out. There is no more story left to tell for her. Right? Having a, a child, a son in particular, was everything in that world. And so nobody reading the story of Ruth expected anything more when Malon and Kilion and Elimelech died with no grandsons. And yet, hear this. Again, while Ruth's world can feel far removed and distant for some of us, some of us know her world all too well. Some of us know really well and really closely how painful that world can be. Like again, I don't know if you've noticed, but we're doing pretty good with the having kids department here at Seven Mile Road, right? Our basic church growth strategy is to have a couple go away for a vacation and then nine months later, the church grows. That's, that's, that's written into our vision statement. Send couples away. That's how we're going to grow, right? So, so we do that well. Just, just give it 20 minutes, and those monsters will be back, and this place will feel like Chuck E. Cheese again, right? And that's every Sunday. And hear me. We would have it no other way. We love that. We thank God with all our hearts for these sons and daughters that fill these pews and run around who are being discipled in the faith so that one generation might pass on to another, that they too might proclaim the Lord and tell yet another generation, we love that and we pray for more. At the same time, in the midst of all the car seats and the juice boxes and the crackers and the little ones darting in and out, can you imagine how difficult this place can be for someone going through the pain of infertility or the pain of not being able to conceive or Ruth's pain of being barren? Imagine what that feels like. And some of you know it now. Some of you have known it in the past. What is that world like when every month the pregnancy test comes back with the wrong color again like it did the month before? Where every baby dedication feels like God himself must be taunting you. If children are a blessing and I don't have them, what does that mean for me? Where every new growing round belly just seems to remind you that yours is empty. Where every little face is another reminder of an unfulfilled dream and desire of yours. And this place can be a constant reminder of something you so deeply long for. And raise that difficult question which is why would God design me and wire me with this desire and then frustrate me with it? 
If you get Naomi and Ruth's world, you get why they were pushed off to the side and didn't know where they would fit into God's world, into God's society, among God's people, in God's purposes. In fact, this is how Naomi says it. 1 verse 21. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Right? Think of that. Empty is how Naomi describes this stage of her life, being husbandless and sonless, being a widow and Ruth being barren. Now, Samar wrote, what are we supposed to do with that? What does Christianity have to say into that world? When the skies are not blue, but they are gray, when my life feels like not a comedy, but a tragedy, what does Christianity have to say into that world? And I want you to hear, last week we said that one of the things Christianity has to say is that you are free to lament. That is that when life is really hard, you are free to tell God that life is really hard. Naomi did that. But I have more for you as well. And that is that there is good news, and that is that God's stories are always filled with surprises and reversals. What you see isn't what you get. And what happens isn't what you'd imagine would have happened. God loves to wire surprise and reversal into his stories. Not that your exact circumstances may be immediately reversed, but that you are not on the outside of God's people or God's purposes or God's world looking in. He has pulled you in. You see, God loves surprises. In fact, this one pastor named Ray Ortland, he said this. He said, few words could be more important for an understanding of the gospel than surprise. Would you hear that? That's a great quote. Few words could be more important for an understanding of the gospel than surprise. And what he's saying is, at the very center of the Christian faith is a story ripe with surprises. What is the Christian faith? The Christian faith is the good news, the good news of Jesus, that God came in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ, lived a perfect life, died a death for our sins through no works of our own that we might receive forgiveness and salvation. Well, in that death, in that cross, what do you find but reversals everywhere, surprises everywhere? What is our gospel? Our gospel, our good news, is that Jesus was stripped naked so that we could be clothed in righteousness. Whoa, I did not see that coming. Our gospel is that Jesus was humiliated and shamed so that we could receive honor. Our gospel is that Jesus was broken so that we could be made whole. Jesus was torn apart so that we could be brought together. Jesus was abandoned so that we could be accepted. Jesus was hated so that we could be loved. Jesus was marginalized and pushed out so that we could be pulled in. Jesus was outcast, cast out so that we might be brought in. Jesus was, though a son, treated as an enemy so that we who are enemies might be treated as sons. We could go on all day, couldn't we? Jesus died so that we might have life. What is that? Surprise and reversal. All over the story. Jesus' death looked like the weakest thing in the world. A man hung naked, crucified on a cross. And yet it was the greatest display of God's power. Jesus' death looked like utter foolishness. And yet it was the display of God's wisdom. 
The day that Jesus died was the ugliest, darkest, most horrifying moment in history. And because of that, the day that Jesus died was the brightest, most beautiful, most God-glorifying moment in human history. What is that? That's surprise. That's reversal. That's God changing things. And if that is what God chose to do in the story of his son, it ought not surprise us that that is what he chooses to do in the story of his people as well. That God loves to take the very people we imagine cannot be used and use them. God loves to take the people that we would imagine are on the outside, marginalized in the fringes and edges of society, and pull them all the way in. God loves to do that. God's purposes are wrapped up in that. Ruth and Naomi, hear me, have so many strikes against them. Why they should be pushed out to the side, so many. Ruth is a Moabite. We touched on that last week. We'll get into it more. I mean, you're talking half-breed. You're talking unclean. You're talking not fit to worship with God's people. Strike one. They're widowed. No husband. Strike two. She's barren. They're sonless. Strike three. Let alone they're poor. Let alone they're marginalized. Let alone they're women. I mean, we could go on all day. And here's the thing. The very people we would have assumed have nothing left to offer are the ones that God decides to pull into the center stage of his story of redemption. And hear me, when I say that he pulls them in center stage, I'm not exaggerating. Ruth is literally brought from all the way out into so far in you could not get more in. She literally becomes in the line of Jesus himself. That's how far God pulls her in. God takes this Moabite barren widow and pulls her from the edges all the way in so that when Ruth becomes a believer and follows Naomi to Bethlehem and meets Boaz and in Bethlehem gives birth to Obed, who has a son named Jesse, who has a son named David, who has a son, who has a son, who has a son, who has a son for a long time sons, who has a son named Joseph, who has a son named Jesus. That's how far God pulls her in to the story he had. That's how far God pulled her into his purposes. That's how much she fit into God's world, into God's society, among God's people, and in God's purposes. Don't you love that? Don't you love that God's purposes, hear me, for the entire world and human salvation were riding on the shoulders of two women the world figured have nothing left to contribute? Don't you love that that's in God's story? And hear me, why does God do that? That's the last thing I want to say and then I'll be done. Why does God do that? Why does God take the lowest and the last and the least? Why does he take the ones that we've written off and counted off and have pushed to the edges and bring them to center stage? He does it for the same reason he decided to choose and use you and me. In fact, this came alive to me just yesterday. I hadn't seen it till then, but I want you to hear this. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. Just hear these words with me. For consider, Seven Mile Road, your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble worth, birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. 
God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Why does God pull in the lowest, the last, the least, so that there would be no doubt about who the hero of this story is? God constantly does that. God is constantly pulling in the people we would have written off so that everybody would know how amazing is God. That's what he does, right? Tonight, just to give you an illustration, tonight is the Super Bowl. If Tom Brady wins, I can guarantee you the immediate blogs and questions are going to be, is he the greatest of all time? It's already started. If he wins the Super Bowl tonight, I guarantee you ESPN, Sports Illustrated, all of them are going to have articles trying to fit him into, is he the greatest of all time? But here's the thing. There's not going to be a unanimous decision about it because people are going to weigh in, and some are going to say, well, he had Bill Belichick, and he's the greatest coach of all time. Some are going to say, well, he deflated footballs. That's why that happened, and on and on it'll go. There'll be an asterisk next to the whole thing. Right? Did he set things up to his advantage? Did he have a supporting cast around him? God will never have that debate. You know why? I've I've heard it before. I think I've said it before. God, when he chooses a team, it's like he is the worst talent scout there is. Right? When when you and I want to play a sport, what do we do? We go and watch. We go, he can play. She can play. All right, that's who I want on my team. When God goes, he stands to the side for a while and he goes... She can't dribble. She's perfect, right? He can't jump. Oh, he's perfect. I mean, he chooses the absolute scrubs so that if anything good should come, there would be no doubt about who gets the glory. God's purpose is often to choose the lowest, the last, and the least so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You see, when you read this, you get that what you're supposed to do with Ruth and Naomi's story is not first go, how incredible are they? But to say, how incredible is a God who takes the very people we have written off and pulls them in? To take the marginalized, to take the outcast, to take the Moabite barren widow and pull her in and say, your life is not on pause. Your life is exactly where I need it to be so that I might accomplish my purposes through you. I I want you to hear this for a second. Ruth's greatest moment, her defining moment, the thing that she is most known for, came when she was childless and husbandless. Right? Her fidelity to Yahweh and her loyalty to Naomi came not when God had brought husband or child. God wasn't waiting to do something great in Naomi, in Ruth's life. It was there in that moment that God used her incredibly for his purposes. And through it, God gets the glory. So, Samarod, whatever your story may be, whatever it is that even your enemy would love to whisper in your ear about your past, about your guilt, about your background, about your upbringing, about your circumstances, about your life stage, whatever he might use to tell you that you're on the outside of all of this watching, I want you to hear God has a better word for you today and that he pulled in Ruth 
And he desires to pull in you. He loves to use the weak to shame the strong and to use the foolish to shame the wise so that there would be no question, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God desires to pull you all the way in. Your life stage, hear me, is not a tragedy. Your life stage is is rather that your life is a stage on which the glory of God is to be displayed even right now. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your wondrous love towards us. And we pray that even now, you would take every heart in this room and stir it with a new affection for God. We pray that you would overwhelm and quiet every other voice that tells us we are on the out, that says some kind of lie to diminish our worth and our value and our standing with you. It does not come from us. It does not come from our life stage. It comes from you. It is fixed in you. And you have purposes for us. We thank you, O Lord, for all the surprises you have shown to us in Christ and for all the reversals you have accomplished through him. We pray that today you would flood our hearts with good news and that the spirit of the almighty God would minister now even to us in better ways than any other person can. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.